Chapter 33 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 33 Pernambuco. On the morrow, we got all ready to sail. We stowed away the fish we had salted and dried, a sufficient quantity to last us for many months to come. For some reason or other, all hands were more or less ill on leaving Trinidad. I was myself suffering from symptoms of malaria, which had been troubling me for some time, and which the recent fatigues I had gone through had much aggravated, so that I was debilitated and worn with fever and almost unfit to work at all. The crew were no better. What was the matter with them I could not pretend to say, for they had visited no malarious regions. I suspect that some of the fish we had caught and eaten were unwholesome, and we certainly had been indulging for some days on an exclusively fish diet. Illness seemed to be the rule on board the Falcon during the whole of this homeward voyage. On our outward voyage, all hands enjoyed constant health. There was a good deal of imaginary illness on board, too, later on, especially on the part of the mate, who had a most wholesome dread of the fevers of tropical ports, and who frightened himself four or five times into what he thought was yellow fever, but which I, as ship doctor, pronounced to be indigestion, the results of overeating. We were now to sail to the Brazilian coast, to the Bay of All Saints. My crew had looked forward with joyful anticipation to landing on Trinidad, but not so to their arrival at their next port. The countenances of the mate and Panissa wore throughout the voyage an anxious gloom, which deepened as we reached the dreaded coast. Bahia lay 700 miles to the northwest of us, so this voyage was not to be a lengthy one. At about 1 p.m. of this day, December 15th, we weighed our anchor and hoisted our sails. As the wind was southeast, the island kept it off us, so that we had to take to the sweeps. Having got an offing with their aid, we at last felt the wind, which was but light, so that we did not make much more than four knots an hour. On the morrow, the 16th of December, the wind veered round to the northeast. At dawn, we perceived a vessel steering almost as ourselves. At midday, we came up with her and sailed close by. She was the Pen Dragon, an iron ship of 2,500 tons, from San Francisco for Queenstown. She asked us to report her at Bahia, which we duly did on our arrival. This day we only made 69 miles. On the 17th of December we made 128 miles. All hands were now more or less prostrated with sickness and fever. On the 18th of December we made 135 miles, the same glorious weather and northeast wind continuing. Being now midsummer, the temperature was high even at sea, about 85 degrees Fahrenheit in our cabin. On the 19th of December, we made 150 miles. On the 20th of December, we made 130 miles. We were now approaching the land. We passed one of the quaint rigged Brazilian Negro coasting vessels this afternoon. The temperature in our cabin rose to 90 degrees. This night, the heavy dew indicated the proximity of land. At about midnight, we sighted the light on Point Itapuan and lay becalmed in front of it during the night, the breakers on the beach being distinctly audible to us. 
At sunrise on the 21st of December, we still lay becalmed. We were not more than one mile from the coast, near the Rio Vermilho. The rows of stately cocos that fringed the sands and hills behind with their dense vegetation looked certainly most beautiful in the morning light, and the rich coast presented the very appearance of an earthly paradise. No wonder that the old navigators grew wildly enthusiastic when such lovely and fresh scenes burst upon them suddenly after dreary months of sailing on an unknown sea. I called up the mate to see how he would be affected by this, to him, first glimpse of a tropical shore. He shook his head sadly. His face wore a look of miserable foreboding. Ah, he said, the very look of it is enough. You can see the fever there. Look at that curious green of the trees. Look at the yellow earth. Anyone can see it is unhealthy. I can see it. I can smell the fever even from here. Hundreds of curious fishing catamarans now sailed out from the shore, manned by naked negroes. On beholding these primitive craft, and on hearing the barbaric jargon of their hideous crews, my men now concluded that I had brought them to a land of savages as well as of fevers. A breeze springing up, we slowly sailed by the coast, doubled Fort San Antonio, and opened out that magnificent bay that is one of the wonders of the world, with its stately city rising steeply from the beach, mingling with a rank and lovely vegetation that only these favored climates can show. Exclamations of surprise and admiration burst from all, but these sentiments soon gave way to fear in the minds of two of the crew as we sailed into the bay smooth and sultry after the fresh and heavy Atlantic outside. A headache at once attacked the mate, and tears were in his eyes as he informed me that he knew the yellow fever had already struck him. Take half a tumbler of castor oil, I said to him, and don't eat so much. I steered the vessel to our old berth under Fort Lamar, and there dropped our anchor after a voyage of six days from Trinidad and thirty-eight days since we sailed from Montevideo. It was now a year since I had last visited the quaint old Portuguese city of the ever-tinkling bells, and I was glad to meet my friends and enjoy once more the delights of civilization. I determined to stay over Christmas at Bahia, as the vessel was in need of some repairs, and particularly of a good cleansing out, so as to exterminate, if possible, the myriads of cockroaches that infested her. I expected remittances at Pernambuco, so I thought I should save time if I left the Falcon at Bahia while I steamed to the former port and back, thus avoiding the necessity of calling there in my own vessel. My crew, of course, were much pleased with my plan, for Pernambuco has a very evil reputation in the River Plate as being by far the most pestilential of Brazilian seaports. Pernambuco is only some 450 miles, looked upon as nothing in this land of enormous distances, from Bahia, so the voyage by steamer is not of long duration or costly. On the eve of Christmas Day, I embarked on the steamer Bahia, one of a very well-conducted native company whose vessels run up and down the entire coast of the empire, calling at every important point. The voyage was a very pleasant one. I have had some experience of ocean passenger vessels, but none have I ever found to be more thoroughly comfortable in every respect than this Brazilian mail steamer. There were no foreigners on board, save myself and two others of the passengers, 
one a German diamond merchant, the other a Capuchin friar from Florence. We three, therefore, naturally were attracted to each other at the commencement of the voyage, being, as the priest put it, if not fellow countrymen, at any rate fellow Europeans, and so neighbors. The German was a thorough cosmopolitan, and so a pleasant companion, but the poor priest, whose face wore an expression of extreme discontent and sorrow, could talk but on one subject, that of which his heart was full, his intense dislike of the manners and customs of the people, of the climate, and of everything indeed pertaining to Brazil. His homesickness was apparent, and the poor fellow said himself, Nostalgia will kill me. So far he was plump enough, though sour-looking, a rather villainous-featured black-bearded priest of the true Inquisition stake and fire type. His conversation was not cheerful, being somewhat like that of my mate. He spoke with loathing of the blacks, the savage Indians, the fevers, the wild beasts, the reptiles, snakes, insects, the terrible dense forests, and the heat. To hear his eloquent complaint, one would take this glorious empire to be a very inferno of horrors, instead of the earthly paradise it really is. The German and myself soon struck up an acquaintance with our Brazilian fellow passengers, chiefly students going home for their vacation from the University of Rio de Janeiro. Very nice young fellows, and evidently gentlemen. There were some families also on board with charming young ladies, and all trying to render themselves as agreeable as possible to their traveling companions. The Brazilians are, indeed at any rate superficially, a delightful people, from the nobility down to the mulatto peasant proprietors. Now that I had visited the River Plate states, I was much struck, as all travelers to South America have been, by the tremendous contrast presented by the Portuguese and Spanish settlements, the Portuguese Empire of Brazil and the numerous republics of the Spanish-speaking peoples. Notwithstanding the existence of slavery and the great degradation of the European race by mixtures with the Negro, Brazil strikes the stranger as being a really civilized nation. Most of the Spanish republics, on the other hand, appear to him to be but badly organized hordes of utter savages. To the most superficial observer is this great difference apparent. In Brazil, a sense of security is experienced, a feeling that one is in a well-ordered state. The government, alone in all America, is monarchical, and the old-fashioned system does indeed shine out bright here when compared with the wild democracies that surround it. Republics with perfect constitutions framed on the highest principles of Bentham and Montesquieu, where universal freedom is preached and the vilest tyranny of unlettered savage chieftains practiced. The Brazilian has one fault, however. He may have more, probably has, but this is a very great one, or at least seems so to me while living on this steamer, as it seriously interfered with my comfort. Whereas, whatever other faults he may have did not get in my way, to them, therefore, I am tolerant. The fault I speak of is this. The Brazilian does not know how to dine comfortably. This, to the Englishman, proverbial for his dining propensities, is simply horrible and unpardonable. For is not dinner one of the greatest duties of life? But the Brazilian slurs this sacred duty over. 
All the courses are put on the table at once. Then comes a scramble, everyone gobbling away as if for very life, helping himself from any or all dishes, pell-mell, and anyhow. Now, a most excellent dinner of many dishes was served on board this steamer. A dinner to linger over, and it was all done in thirteen minutes exactly by my watch. Even when hurried by business, this is inexcusable. But on a steamer, where one has nothing to do but eat and drink, and look forward with anticipation to the next meal as soon as one is finished, such a custom is positively criminal. Why thus hurry over the chief pleasure of the day? Life is not so full of joys. Should we not advance delicately from course to course, dally over the dessert, and then, softly meditating, linger long over the soothing cigar, coffee, and its chasa? But alas, the good dinner is all over in thirteen minutes, though it be Christmas Day. Very little wine is drunk, the coffee is taken standing, no one follows it with a chasa, and everyone rushes off, and the German and myself do not feel that we have dined. However, we console ourselves by sitting under the awning on deck, smoking excellent cigars, and watching the glorious coast scenery as we pass it. Leagues after leagues of sandy shores lined with waving coconuts, and green hills studded here and there with great mango trees. So passed my Christmas day, like my last one at sea. On the 26th of December, the steamer anchored for some hours in the Bay of Masaiol, off the town of the same name, to take in cargo. This is not a considerable seaport. There were but six vessels at anchor when we arrived, nearly all Englishmen loading with sugar, and, like ourselves, rolling about heavily in the high Atlantic swell, for the bay is exposed to the prevailing onshore wind. The glaring white town is built on the slopes of a hill. In front of it is a fine sandy beach on which there is perpetual surf. As everywhere else on the Brazilian coast, groves of coconuts line the shore and beautify what would otherwise be a rather arid scene. The diamond merchant and myself went on shore for a while, being landed by a native boat on the end of a rather rickety pier. We found Masaio to be an exceedingly uninteresting town, a mere congregation, for the most part, of small huts inhabited by negroes and mulattoes. There was a tramway, of course, as everywhere else in South America, and the strings of nearly naked slaves and carts that were bringing down the sacks of sugar to the beach, not without much bustle and noise, lent some life to the miserable streets. The export of sugar from Masaio is very considerable, and this was the season of greatest activity in that trade. We soon had enough of this glaring town, for the heat was very intense. It was indeed seasonable weather, that is, for Christmas in the southern tropics. Early on the morning of the 27th of December, we were off Pernambuco, which from the sea appears insignificant enough, huge city though it be, on account of its low and perfectly flat site. Forests of cocoa seemed to surround it. I had heard a good deal of the celebrated Recife or natural breakwater which forms the harbor of Pernambuco, but I was not prepared to see so wonderful a freak of nature as it really is. The Recife is a coral bank or reef extending along many hundreds of leagues of the Brazilian coast. In places there are openings or gates in this reef, 
through which vessels can sail into the smooth lagoons within, and here ports are established. Here at Pernambuco, the Recife is parallel to the shore and distant but 80 yards or so from it. It rises in a broad, squared wall of coral, perfectly regular, being some feet above the level of high-water springs. To the north of town, this wall terminates abruptly, and the reef from that point is below sea level. At the end of this wall is an old fort erected by the Dutch, just under which is a very narrow channel deep enough for the passage of vessels. But the broadest and safest opening through this reef is still further to the north. Steaming through this latter passage, we proceeded up this admirable harbor which cannot but strike every visitor with astonishment. It is, as it were, a broad canal, thronged with vessels flying the flags of every civilized nation. On our right hand extended a fine stone quay bordered by an avenue of shady trees, behind which were long rows of houses, the stores of merchants, hotels, banks, and cafes. On our left, perfectly parallel to the quay, extended the Recife, a straight wall of dark coral, squared and so regular that one could scarce believe that this was the work of nature and not of man. Cannons captured in the Paraguayan War were firmly led into this wall at short intervals to which the vessels were moored. Under shelter of this breakwater, the water was as smooth as glass, while on its other side the great Atlantic waves, driven up before the trade wind, broke furiously, at times dashing showers of spray right over among the shipping in the still canal. The waves not unfrequently wash over the Recife, but, as storms are almost unknown on this coast, it is rare that much damage is inflicted. Pernambuco has been called by some imaginative people the Venice of Brazil. The resemblance consists merely in the fact of water being a rather common feature of both cities. The river Capabaribe doubles upon itself several times while traversing Pernambuco and hence one crossing the city in a straight line comes frequently upon broad canal-like stretches of slow-moving water bordered by quays and houses. But the architecture and general coloring is anything but Venetian. These canals present an animated appearance, being covered with a small craft of the country that bring down the produce from the interior. Not here are the gondolas, but long, narrow native dugout or canoes formed of hollowed trees, paddled by negroes and other swarthy savages, whose form of head denotes their Indian blood. The catamarans, too, mere rafts, skim along the water with an astonishing speed under their white triangular sails. Some of these canals are exceedingly foul, well calculated to breed yellow fever, one would imagine. Pernambuco, translated, signifies the mouth of hell, and its reputation is well described by its name. Low-lying as it is, and surrounded by mangrove swamps and lagoons of foul, stagnant water, it ought to be a most unhealthy place. Indeed, so it once was, being justly reputed, as I have said, the most pestilential seaport of Brazil. But Pernambuco is gradually acquiring a better reputation. Yellow fever does not visit it as often as of old, nor are the epidemics of this plague so severe as they were. An English company has undertaken the drainage of the town, and the increased salubrity is by many put down to this cause. 
Again, there is but little malaria, even in the suburbs and in the vicinity of the swamps, for the fresh trade wind that never fails by day effectually disperses the deadly exhalations. For seven days I had to wait at Pernambuco, as no steamer sailed for the south during that period. Thus, I was able to study the city in its ways. My chief impression left was that of sugar. Sugar indeed pervaded Pernambuco when I was there. The very air was sugar. The city was paved with it. The heavy smell of it was positively oppressive at times. The gates of great barn-like stores gaped on the streets, and within each I saw half-naked Indians, Negroes, and Mestizos piling up very mountains of the yellow crystals with their spades. Clumsy cart after cart, truck after truck, lumbered creaking from every quarter to the quays, obstructing the ways with molasses dripping out between their boards. Pernambuco indeed reeks of sugar. From the stores it overflows into the road, under one's feet is a brown sticky mud like tar in consistency, and far more soiling than even our greasy London mud, for the mud of this city is of unrefined cane sugar. The country round Pernambuco, though flat, is exceedingly beautiful. Overflowed as it is with a vegetation of whose magnificence no one who has never visited the tropics can have any conception. I went one evening to Kashanga, which is to Pernambuco somewhat as Richmond is to London, and about an hour's journey by rail. It was one of those magical evenings that are common enough in this land of perpetual summer, starlit and still. Our whole way lay through a wonderful fairy-like grove, where trees and plants that are valuable treasures of the hothouse to us grew in wild luxuriance. We passed villa after villa nestling in gardens. And what gardens? What magical colors? What dark green masses or light feathery palms and bright flowered creepers? And, more wonderful than all, the frequent great trees, leafless, but covered for leaves with bouquets of vivid purple or crimson. The villas were gaudy to an English eye. Horrible would they be under an English sky, but here quite harmonious to their surroundings and in good taste. Luxurious palaces of the tropics, where dwelt the wealthy Pernambucan merchants, open and airy mansions all of light color, many covered with porcelain tiles, most of them light blue, picked out with white, as if houses of Wedgwood, China. Kashanga itself is not much of a place, but there are splendid baths of cool spring water that are the chief attractions, for a cool bath is not to be found everywhere in this climate. To the north of Pernambuco is a hill overlooking the sea, on which is built the ancient and now almost deserted city of Olinda. Between the two cities extends a dreary, marshy plain with lagoons and festering mangrove swamps, tufts of palms rising occasionally above the lower vegetation. An excellent road has been carried across this wilderness from one city to the other. Feeling very energetic one day, I walked along this to Olinda. I rather repented of my project before I had got halfway, for it was broiling hot and shade there was none. The only people I passed were naked negroes wading in the black mud among the mangroves in search of crabs, and they looked at me with surprise as I passed, for a white man tramping along this road on a midsummer midday was a strange sight indeed to them. Olinda itself, 
one of the most ancient of American towns, is now a city of the dead. All the houses are old, of the antique Portuguese style. Churches and convents seem to be the most common buildings. Their number is extraordinary. The streets are steep, winding, and ill-paved, grass-grown, and silent. Even the magnificent cathedral appears to be neglected. Great indeed is the contrast between Olinda and modern bustling Pernambuco. The situation is very fine, and a magnificent view of the distant seaport and of all the country around is obtained from the open places. Great palm trees rise in every portion of the city and set off to advantage the austere and massive ecclesiastical edifices. On reaching the summit of the town, where, from a plot of grass in front of what I took to be a monastery, the best view is commanded, I sat down to make a hurried pencil sketch. Hitherto I had walked through silent streets, hearing but the echoes of my own footfall, when now I was suddenly startled by the most fearful and blood-curdling yells just behind me. Leaping up, I perceived that they proceeded from a tumble-down-looking building that I had not before observed. It was somewhat like one of the cages in which lions are imprisoned in the zoological gardens, for a stout iron grating was carried along the front of it. Within were several men, mulattoes for the most part, with faces like wild beasts who shook the bars and raised the fearful cries that had startled me. This, as my readers may have guessed, was the pauper lunatic asylum. End of chapter 33